say my name until the city burns and the stars fade away and your scars don't hurt i will hold you till the sun comes crashing down i'm yours until the end of time hey everyone welcome to the restored to more podcast a listener supported podcast that is dedicated to restoring marriages to wholeness in christ after being affected by pornography and sexual brokenness After betraying charity with pornography and unwanted sexual behavior, we had no idea how to rebuild our relationship or even if it was possible to restore what was broken. Today, by God's grace, we have learned how to connect again, laugh again, and rebuild spiritual, emotional, and sexual intimacy to an even greater experience than before. Our goal is that as you hear our story, the stories of others, and the knowledge needed to heal, you too can have a marriage that is becoming restored to more. I'm yours until the end of time. Update everyone. Course one registrations are back open. Whoop, whoop. This is an eight week course starting Thursday, September 14th. That is designed to help you and your spouse start the journey to becoming restored to more. It will be led by R2M certified coaches, Cody and Michelle Larson. We will be focusing on how to cultivate safety and trust, healthy communication, deal with triggers, and begin to discover how God can use crisis to create closeness. You can see all the details on our website and can register today at www.restoredtomore.com slash courses. Also, if you have appreciated this podcast, a great way to say thank you is leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. These reviews help more people find the podcast and experience hope and healing. Say my name until the city. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Restore to More. This morning, we are the privileged host of Michael and Julianne Kusick. Michael Kusick is a licensed professional counselor, spiritual director, speaker, and author of two books, including Surfing for God and Somebody's Daughter. Having experienced the restoration touch of God in a deeply broken life and marriage, Michael, along with his wife Julianne, established the international ministry Restoring the Soul, where they lead intensive counseling to connect life's broken realities with the reality of the gospel. He also adds tremendous value through the Restoring the Soul podcast. Julianne Cusick holds a master's degree in marriage and family therapy and is a marriage and family therapist candidate. Her passion is to fight for the hearts of women and men shattered after pornography, affairs, and other forms of intimate partner betrayal. Julianne is EMDR trained and utilizes a trauma-informed lens when working with women, men, and couples. She has over 20 years of experience helping women overcome the wounds of sexual betrayal and a huge passion for healing and redemption. Welcome, Michael and Julianne Kusick. Well, Julianne, before, if you wouldn't mind, can you share with us, because we know your story, but our listeners may not, uh, could you give us like a little spark note version of your guys' story so our audience can get to know you guys a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, Michael um, told me before we were um, engaged and married that he had struggled with um porn addiction that he'd been exposed at an early age and he had been in counseling for a couple of years. And I was young and naive and had never heard about sex addiction um, and said, fine, um, that's in the past. And once we get married, it's not okay. So we got married and I think along the lines of what Clinton was saying about an intimacy disorder um, really started to come to light. 
Uh, although we didn't know that, we just had the struggles and symptoms. And then a couple of years into our marriage, I was not feeling loved. And he was saying, oh, I love you. And I was like, ah, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was saying much stronger words than that. But I don't know your audience, so mm-hmm. I won't start with swearing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, push come to shove, uh, caught him in a lie and unraveled. Um, that he had been acting out again for about the past year or so. And that to me was just devastating. I wanted to leave. It was just the hardest um, season. That was actually when I was supposed to get my graduate degree the first time. Um, But the graduate degree I got instead was what's it like to experience betrayal from your spouse and then walk through betrayal, trauma, recovery. Mm. Um, I didn't get to agree for that. That was my, (laughs) I didn't get the paper and the cap and gown, but that was my first degree. And now it's been 27 years. Um, It was about, I don't know, at some point we renewed our vows. Um, How I, I came to be involved in this. Michael was really experiencing freedom and healing. And he was doing counseling and leading men's groups. And all these women were wanting to talk to me. And much like Clinton, who said, I I never wanted to talk about this. Mm -hmm. That was me like, thanks. Uh, Worst shame ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't want to tell anyone, let alone meet with strangers and talk about it. Um, Ha ha ha. God (laughs) is laughing. Um, Because here I am now 27 years later, it's my specialty. I have over 20 years of experience, did all of my graduate studies on betrayal trauma and the impact of betrayal trauma, the prevalence, the recovery, the different methods, um, which ones are harmful, which ones are helpful. And, you know, numerous podcasts and dedicate my whole life now Mm -hmm. to helping people um, recover this, this tragedy. And it is common, and there's not a lot out there um, for help. So uh, be careful what you say. You'll never do. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so God, he won me though, because I ultimately started talking and sharing because, um, and maybe charity, you will re- resonate with this. I didn't want other women to suffer and struggle with the silence and shame mm. the way I did. And so that was what drew me, um, was my heart for other women going through it. Mm. And that's when I just literally threw my hands to God and said, okay, I'll talk. You guys have such a powerful story. And I'm sorry too, that you guys have this story, but I'm so grateful at the same time because you guys were a resource for a couple like us uh, who was dying for answers and dying for education and tools and resources. And I'm so grateful that you guys didn't stay silent and that shame didn't cover you guys in your story like the enemy probably wanted to. And um, it was very tempting to go that route. But I'm so grateful that you guys didn't allow that to be your story and to use a platform to educate women uh, specifically because that's yeah, exactly where I was, where I just I just needed answers and I just wanted support and I wanted to know, you know, just how to move forward and that there's another couple out there. I think it's so powerful when you can point to a couple and say, look, they made it. You can too. 
And that's where I was at. I was just like, I just need couples who have a fruitful marriage now so that I know that we can do it and then give me the resources. But just let me see a, a little picture of them and that'll be motivating and then give me all the tools so that I know that that was my hope at the end of that very dark tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're not alone in that. So many people want that. Is it possible? Is healing possible? Is recovery possible? Mm -hmm. Can we have a real marriage? Um, and so, um, yeah, it is, it's a light in the darkness and it does provide hope. And, and, um, modern Christianity in the U S is almost set up to help people do this superficially mm. through premature forgiveness or by mm. defining the problem superficially as just a behavior to stop. There's a passage in, uh, I believe it's Jeremiah 7, where the prophet says, peace, peace, you say to my people where there is no peace and you heal the wound superficially. And the core of our ministry is the belief that whether you're a therapist or spiritual director or doing soul care, that what the work of God is and what Jesus is really passionate about doing is making broken people whole mm -hmm. and setting us free, not just from the things that hold us in bondage toward that fruitfulness that you're talking about, that ability to run in the path of his commands because of the freedom. Um, and so one of the things that I'm really passionate about is coming alongside Julianne and her betrayal trauma work. I don't work exclusively with men with sexual addiction. I, I work with a lot of different issues, mostly trauma related and a lot of men's issues. Um, but I have a passion for helping to heal people's image of God and help people go from doing Christianity to really experiencing encounter with God and living in union with him. And I would say that my addictive tendencies and the pain that I've caused and the harm that I've done with my addiction and deception that that's really been the fuel for that. Mm. So, you know, as you guys are doing what you're doing, it's not just helping people recover from betrayal trauma, but really proclaiming a kind of faith in mm. Christ that requires something more than just mm. simple belief. Uh, but really allowing our hearts to yield to him and be made whole. Mm. Yeah. Amen to that. You know, it's so many things you guys just said are, are, resonate with charity and I in our own story. And we know that that is true. You know, my image of God, I know that I gave my life to Christ when I was seven years old, but to actually experience God is what I needed to experience Jesus. And for him to say, I know what you've done and I love you and I have forgiven you. Um, it takes me back, it gets me emotional because <laughs> it takes me back to that moment where I was in my car and it was just like that forgiveness was so overwhelming that I couldn't, I couldn't escape from it. And that was that, that was one of those defining moments. And I'm sure you have those two in the restoration process where you're like, that was one of those moments, man, where I experienced God in a whole new way. And I was able to move forward and, and my view of God changed because he was no longer absent. He was no longer angry. He was no longer shaming me. It was just this love of the Father that was so overwhelming that created the ability to change. And thanks for sharing that. Mm. Mm. I think that's beautiful, Clinton. I think just what we are saying is 
it, it, it was difficult for us in part of just discovering our healing journey and what was working, what wasn't working. And in, in the beginning, a lot of advice that Clint would get is, hey, you know, just stop or just memorize scripture. And so then he's, you know, mem- memorizing a bunch of scripture and he's like, I'm, I'm doing it like I'm trying. And then there's shame on top of it again when it's not working. And I love that perspective because God is a God who forgives, who loves. And when you can actually, it's not about just having all the logic. It's about having an experience with him, understanding the kind of God that he is. Then I think you can really see transformation and growth. But I think a lot of people just don't even know about that. Yeah. If you guys would love to add some input and some insight on shame, I just think our listeners would love that. You know, what role does shame play for the addict and also for the betrayed? So shame from the perspective of the betrayed partner. I'll speak from my own journey first. I was really stuck in the shame of my husband's behaviors. And it took a number of years before I think I was able to identify it that way. And that's why I use the phrase silence and shame. Mm -hmm. Michael was getting free, free, leading groups, counseling. uh, And I was still in silence and shame. I, my story wasn't public through me. It was public through him. And I remember just feeling this like cloak over me or carrying this heavy baggage of shame of, of his behaviors. And it was, uh, a critical point when I was confronted somehow within myself with God, why am I covered in shame for something I didn't even do? Mm. And that kind of unlocked for me, this sense of there's no, there's no shame here. There's no shame in something I didn't even, I didn't even do. And that started to begin more my public journey of sharing with others, um, one after the next, after the next. And during that season, you know, praying, God, don't waste my pain. And he's been very faithful. Every time I get to talk about this, he's honoring that prayer, right? He's not wasting my pain. And I remember years and years and years ago, um, heard Philip Yancey speak at a graduation, or maybe it was a, maybe he was preaching at our church. Um, but he, I'll never, yeah, I think it was at the church, but, um, I remember he said, nothing irredeemable can happen to us. And that just spoke to me and has stayed with me for 20 plus years, nothing irredeemable. So there's nothing in our lives, whether it's porn addiction or, uh, abuse, or, I mean, the worst poverty, whatever it is, nothing that comes our way, health crisis, financial crisis is irredeemable. Um, And so that's the perspective that I have when I sit with, with women and couples is, you know, God's not up there wringing his hands going, Oh my gosh, what do I do now? You know, nothing irredeemable can happen to us. Nothing's outside his reach. What a great perspective. I love that. I specifically love why am I covered in shame for something I didn't even do? And and once you have that realization, then going from there, but that is so good. 
Mm -hmm. That was my personal journey. And then over the years, as I've met with women, I've seen how shame has reared its head. And I think in this, the enemy, right? When there's already a wound that's bleeding, he wants to come in and dig in it and pour salt in it. And so women who struggle with their identity as a woman or as a person, um, their how they feel about themselves, their looks, their body. Um, you know, maybe they struggle with being overweight or there's a feature they don't like about themselves. And then the enemy just pours salt in that wound and puts shame on, or, you know, on her in her vulnerability. And it's really not about the woman, the husband's acting out. Um, and we can switch the roles and say, when a wife is acting out, um, that's not about the husband. And yet so many times that when a, when a wife betrays, it, it strikes to the core uh, in that man of his identity, his worth as a man, his value. Um, and, and so it's both ways, whichever, whoever's the betrayer or the betrayed, shame can come in and attack where we're already vulnerable. And I would just add to that, that um, it took me a long time to see this and it's taken me a long time to wrestle with and understand the nature of the shame that was passed on to me. But by definition, one of the things that infidelity of all kinds, including pornography, affairs, strip clubs, is uh, that it, it communicates whether intentional or not, whether conscious or not that she is not enough. And so, you know, you're probably familiar with the experience and I've talked to women who say, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Wasn't I enough? Wasn't I pretty enough, thin enough, etc." And a husband um, doesn't always think she's not enough and might actually think I have a great wife and we have a great relationship. Uh, and yet there's that draw. And so that, uh, that shame upon Julianne that I brought was something that I never wanted to do. Never even made that Mm. connection that that was there. Mm -hmm. Um, In Ephesians five, your listeners probably know the passage about husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. And in the message paraphrased by Eugene Peterson, it's paraphrased um, go all out in loving your wife as Christ loves the church, a love marked by giving, not getting his words evoke her beauty, dressing her in dazzling white silk. And so my addiction and infidelity had the exact opposite mm-hmm. of that, not just the pain and not just the anger and not just the, what we now know as trauma, but my heart was wanting to be able to evoke her beauty and feel that, that power and significance as a husband, that what I bring to the table is, is really good in a way where she becomes more beautiful. And I felt utterly inadequate to do that, which was my shame. Yeah. And then, you know, hurting people hurt people, pain that's not transformed is transmitted. So then my shame was put on her and the cycle just goes around and around and around, which is why I say that, you know, apart from um, an interior life that's developing in Christ and attentiveness and self-awareness, apart from that, shame is really what makes the world go round. Mm. (laughs) Sad, but true. Yeah. I would would add with what you're saying, Michael's shame, and I think this is something um, that's true for anyone that's in hiddenness or secrecy, 
um, you know, whether it's sex addiction or, um, you know, eating ice cream at 2am, <laughs> you know, um, there's a shame over ourselves and our own behavior and that belief of I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. And then that shame actually, like Michael was saying, fuels the cycle. I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm comforting myself with food, sex, porn, whatever. And it, then it feels good for a minute because why do something that doesn't feel good? And then afterwards, what follows is the guilt and shame, which actually perpetuates the cycle. So shame is what keeps us locked into those unhealthy uh, patterns, behaviors, addictions. And it's not till we can pull back shame, come into the light and look at what's deeper underneath. Right? We, shame is just a covering. What's underneath many times is woundedness, brokenness, sin that's been done, done to us that hasn't been healed, false beliefs about ourselves. I'm not good enough right? I'm flawed. I'll never be enough. I don't have what it takes. And it's not till we get to those root lies that we can pull out those lies and really start to walk in the truth. And our experience has been in our work here with intensives and our intensive weekends and Julian's work with women and couples. Um, and I always intuitively sense this, but it's it's been proven true, even though I haven't done formal research on it, that when men or women are struggling and they're just stuck in the cycle, whether it's a betrayal response where there's some kind of dysregulation in the nervous system or a man who can't get freedom from acting out, that it's usually some kind of deep lingering shame that's embodied and gets triggered. Mm -hmm. And when that gets addressed, then real freedom can come, whether it's from the trauma side of the betrayed or whether it's from the one that's acting out. And so that's often overlooked and kind of seen way down the road at the end of the journey of healing. Um, but you know, you guys know that our approach is not behavior modification, but when the, the behavior and the freedom doesn't fall in line, that's usually what's going mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And to say more about what's out there as far as behavior modification, I think 80% of what's out there is behavior mod. And Clinton, I'm so sorry you were told, right? Just mem memorize these verses because it, 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 it diminishes the power of the relationship with God that's available to you, right? And it diminishes your heart, your soul, your struggle. And then it heaps more shame on because you do all those memory verses and you don't get free and you think something's wrong with me. <laughs> I'm not doing it right. I've got to work harder. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, but I think that's a lot of what's out there is behavior mod. And I think the other 20% is what we do, which is what's what's underneath, you know, and it's not so much, um, the roots of sin, which there's a, um, a, a thread of that that's out there as well, but it's, what's your story? Where, where did this come in, in your story? See, Jesus is really personal. You know, when he, when he met the woman at the well, you know, what did she say about him? I met a man who told me everything I've ever done. There was no shame in that. She was known. Jesus wants to know our story. 
And so what does it mean to unpack our story before him instead of just trying to rearrange the furniture on the surface? It's so much deeper than that. I love that. That is that is good stuff, you guys. That was a lot. I mean, you could talk about that for hours for sure. And there is so much there. I guess my question, I'm sure people are wondering this too as they listen to this podcast, is they're wondering, okay, here's the deal though. I've talked to my pastor and my pastor did the behavior mod. I talked to some friends and they did the behavior mod and my behavior isn't changing. And I, and I, I do love Jesus. I go to church and I, I love encountering Jesus in the worship session and I do read my Bible, but what's missing here? Like how do I encounter God in a way that I haven't encountered him before? that leads to true freedom. Can I take a hit at that? Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, working on a writing project right now where I discuss four different ways that people try to uh, change within the Christian community. And the first one is what I call moralism. Uh, Dallas Willard called that the gospel of sin management. And that's where we, we try harder and harder. We flex our moral muscles. It may include getting accountability for the purpose of confessing sin. And that's often very shame-based. So uh, Clint, if you are the cop and I know that you're going to write me a ticket for speeding, then I'm not going to speed, right? And that's speeding is the equivalent of lust and acting out and sinning. Um, the second approach is um, inspiration. So the gospel of inspiration. So if I listen to enough Bethel worship songs, or if I go to enough conferences or read enough Christian books, then I'm going to get inspired and I'm going to discover the key to this freedom that will unlock the door that will kind of allow me to live this life where I'm not struggling. And even with the moralism, but also with the inspiration gospel, that the approach is really based on the fact that I'm not okay. God is not pleased with me, which is really a perversion of the gospel. God is pleased with us and delights in us and sings over us and draws us with his chords of kindness when I'm in my worst moment of sin or when I'm on my knees and reading my Bible. Um, And so both of those approaches can really be shame-based. The third approach is activism, And this is much more uh, common with the younger generations and with millennials where they've kind of burned out on, I'm I'm sick of trying harder. I'm sick of trying to manage sin. I'm sick of trying to just get fired up at another pep rally for Jesus. And so I'm going to give myself to a cause. And they're good causes, Mm -hmm. human trafficking, clean water in Africa, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, crisis pregnancy centers. And there's a sense that I'm doing this because of my faith. And if I throw myself into it, um, hard enough, then I will, you know, somehow my heart will be consumed in a way where I'll be free. Then the fourth approach is rationalism, a gospel of rationalism. And that's where uh, the emphasis is really on correct doctrine, believing the right things, and cognitively understanding who God is, cognitively understanding the ideas of freedom. Um, I too was told to memorize scripture, so I, I, I memorized three in the the book of Romans and, you know, deeply studied um, Romans six and freedom. And it didn't help me at all. I'm grateful for that. But really the, the, the gospel that sets us free is a gospel of uh, transformation. And that transformation is a 
a collection of all four of those other components, but it's really based on contemplation. Some people hear that word and they freak out and they think that, you know, you have to chant like a Swami and levitate <laughs> or something like that. But, but all contemplation is, is a faith that's rooted in stillness. Uh, Isaiah 46 or Psalm 4610. I'll often ask uh, folks in an audience, what do you think is the hardest command in the scriptures for a person struggling with lust or sexual addiction to obey? And they'll quote every verse about sex. And it's this idea of being still, because when we're still, we have to begin to face what's inside of ourselves. And our good friend, Ian Cron, who wrote the book on the Enneagram, he says that it's in solitude and silence that you're most likely to bump into yourself and God. And so a person doesn't need more scripture unless they're like a baby Christian and they don't know that God loves them. What they need is the ability to be present to themselves. And last thing I'll say is there was a book uh, passed on from the 15th century by Nicholas Herman, better known as Brother Lawrence. And he wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And people say, I I can't practice the presence of God. It's because they can't practice the presence of themselves. And so that's really the starting point, you know, which is why a basic question that a counselor might ask, like, what are you feeling? How many people go, "Uh, I don't know. Uh, other than for guys, the four basic emotions of horny, hungry, tired, and hangry. What am I feeling? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And um, sometimes that's the doorway into our soul where we encounter God. And we encounter God in the midst of what's actually there, not with what should be there. Mm. Wow. So good. And it starts with just being still and being quiet and sitting with yourself. Many, many, many people find that when they're just getting missed by pastors or counselors telling them behavior mod and memorize more scripture, find somebody who's trauma informed, find somebody maybe who's a spiritual director, find someone who you feel safe with that you can tell your story with and start to unpack your story. You know, imagine sitting in the living room with me and we're curled up on the couch and the fire's going, we've got mugs of hot tea or cocoa, and you're just telling me your story. And imagine telling God your story. Um, And maybe God isn't safe. So maybe it needs to be that one person who was a safe place for you in your life. Who is that? Can you find that person or another person to be safe with? And sitting with somebody who has the ability to connect with you um, that you feel safe with. I think safety is the number one um, qualification or characteristic I would recommend folks look for. I think it's so important for everything that you said because our listeners are, you know, in that spot. And if we just go to someone who's not trained in trauma, then they're not going to normalize our symptoms. And what we need is somebody to normalize our situation because it's abnormal already. So we want somebody to support us and say, yes, what you're feeling is normal. That you have are now a detective, that is normal. You know, now that you're in shock, you can't sleep, you know, your memory's going, your hair loss, all of the crazy symptoms that happen. Um, but you're not going to feel normal if you don't go to somebody who's trauma informed because they're going to say that that's not normal and put you in something else. And you're already feeling so abnormal. Your situation's abnormal. So you just need to feel normal. You need that reassurance. Like what you're going through is okay. 
and you're going to get past it, but everything that you're going through is normal. So then just gives that woman that peace and reassurance, like, okay, now how do I move forward? Right? So everything you're saying is so important, especially for women and men to both understand the effects that addiction and pornography has. Um, one thing that I would love for you guys to talk about, you know, I heard in a podcast you guys talked about, and this just, I, I this totally transformed my mind um, about God and sex. And I love the question that you asked and you say, what does God say about sex and what does sex say about God? Can you guys talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually uh, this morning where I got this quote from Teresa Vavila that I mentioned earlier um, is uh, that I'm preparing a talk on it's called um, sex, soul and God. And um, I would say the first thing that sex says about God, and most people are probably more familiar with the, the former, you know, what does God say about sex? Do not commit adultery, that kind of thing. Um, but that, that God is wild and that God is ecstasy, that any human emotion is not just um, an emotion that God experiences because we're made in his image, but it's actually a, an aspect of God. And so God loves pleasure. It's not just that, oh, God gave us sex for pleasure, but that God loves pleasure. And within the Trinity, which is uh, not two becoming one, but three becoming one, the definition of the Trinity is uh, three separate eternal persons, but one substance. So there's this unity and this oneness there. But instead of God saying, here's this theological idea that I want you to comprehend. God always wants us to experience knowledge and the definition of knowledge in its original sense, Adam knew Eve, and we become far more left-brained and uh, knowledge is information. I think that's because we've eaten at the tree of knowledge Mm -hmm. instead of the tree of life, which um, is one of the things that this kind of journey draws you back to. My heart is really hungry for life. And now, uh, Information and, and, and data about God is not enough. So God loves pleasure and that that pleasure is physical and embodied. You know, this is a, a really obvious thing to say, but a lot of people go, huh, I never thought about that. God loves physical matter. God loves physicality. God loves human bodies. And um, so if we don't understand the idea of embodiment and that the soul is not this tissue papery thing that when we die floats up to heaven, but our soul is our body, our mind, our emotions, and our will. And that's the Hebrew idea of soul. The Greek idea of soul is mind, emotions, and will. So we think, we feel, we choose. And this Greek idea that the body is bad and the spirit is good that's not really a biblical idea of soul. And so where do I, where do I say that, that God loves all this? Well, the incarnation, John 1.14, that he put on flesh and skin and walked among us. And there's just massive, massive implications about that. Um, the, the next thing is that God is always pouring out, uh, that he's generative, uh, that that God in everything he does about creating life and, and therefore understanding what sex says about God actually um, uh, helps us to become more fully human. 
um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Eugene Peterson paraphrased, sex is more than mere skin on skin. It's as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. And so I believe that at its, at its heart, in addition to pleasure and procreating the world and making babies, that sex really gives us a foretaste of living within the Trinity. Uh, that there's pleasure, delight, that there's outpouring, that there's generativity, that there's always giving, but never a diminishment. And um, Yancey says that perhaps only in the act of sex are we more like God than in any other place, because we're vulnerable and yet there's safety, at least within a healthy, mutual, reciprocal, covenant relationship, um, that that we delight in the other and we empty ourselves and surrender and yet we're, we're filled and not diminished. And so um, it really becomes a window into the very heart of God. Then you have all the different metaphors in scripture about how the Lord um, in the old Testament specifically uh, draws us as a lover and uses the analogy of how Israel they're adulterous and how they're wayward. And he's not just referring to the physical adultery and the sexual sin that the Canaanite gods required, but he's referring to the heart allegiance and to the loyalty. So right there, you know, we see the wound of God, that God loves us at the expense of his own broken heart. And therefore, if God's wounded like that, how much more my wife when I was unfaithful to her? Wow. And I think based on what Michael is saying, right, about what it says, what sex says about God, I think we start to see why our sexuality and sex is under such attack, not just through sex addiction and pornography and strip clubs, um, taking something beautiful and twisting it, but the little girl who's fondled, right, Um, the woman who's raped on the college campus. Uh, what better way to ruin uh, pleasure and an experience of oneness and safety than to violate a young person um, or to violate a woman? And how many Christian marriages has the sexual relationship been twisted? Has scripture been twisted and used um, with men use scripture to force themselves on their wives because she belongs to him and must submit. And that is not a reflection of the heart of God at all. Um, and so as we talk about sex and God, we, ha- we also have to be aware of how that has been used against um, women and the enemy is so crafty and intentional to do that. Um, Richard Rohr, uh, Father Richard Rohr, um, in his book, The Divine Dance, uh, when I heard him speak several years ago here in Denver, he talked about sexuality and sex and the difference between subject to object and subject to subject. And what he means by that, when when we're objectified, when we become an object, right? So how many women in Christian marriages have become objectified um, where they're not experiencing that subject to subject? Because when we're subject to subject, there's equality, there's mutual um, uh, vulnerability, there's mutual 
what was it? Did you say nothing diminishes, but it's this giving of ourselves that subject to subject. That's what God intends and means for. And what many Christian women experience is the opposite. They feel used. They feel objectified. And I, I want women to know um, that's not uh, what is intended, what God hopes for. And if you're experiencing that, you're not crazy. When your body recoils at touch, um, there's likely trauma underneath. When you're doing it as an, as an act of, of service or obedience, that's not the heart of God. Um, and the fact that, that you don't enjoy that doesn't say something is wrong with you. It says just the opposite, that something is right with you, that you were created for so much more. I think what you guys are saying too, is there's a, there's a, there's a lot of core things here that we, that are really important. And that is that being still allows us to be okay with us, to accept us the way we are and to process those things, which is extremely hard for most people, I mean, I can say it was very hard for me to be still, and I still have to practice it and be very diligent about finding that space where I'm okay with me. I was my, I was my biggest, I mean, I, I hated looking in mirrors. I heard someone say that, and I went, oh my gosh, I resonate with that so much. I just couldn't stand looking at me. And then, and then I had to look at me, and I had to allow God to look at me, because there was a sense of, I can go into a worship session, but I don't want God to actually look in me. And then once we do that, then then I can be okay with me. I realize I have nothing to prove. I know that God loves me. He loves my body. He loves my sexuality. I, I, I'm, I'm perfectly made. You know, there's so many beautiful things about myself that I can now accept me that I think then that flows into me being able to see charity and love charity and appreciate charity. And now it gives me the ability to know her. And that's what we're talking about. First, being present to ourselves. And then, as you said, Clinton, being present to God, allowing God to see you. And then when we experience that, being able to turn to the other and allow the other to see us and for us to see into them. So as you guys have seen, this is a very prevalent issue right now, not only in America, but internationally. We know that we know that you guys are doing a lot of work. You're giving a lot of talks. You're speaking. You're doing a lot of your intensive counseling. What, um, what do you feel needs to happen in the trend of Christian circles so that more people of leadership are educated? Because if you know, we only work with a very small amount of people compared to what you have done in your 20 plus years of experience. And what we are continuing to find is that well-meaning people with great intentions are consistently uninformed on these topics. And they are, like you said, Michael, they continue to go to the behavioral modifications and they're not telling us to sit still and experience God in that way. And it's about doing, it's about working, it's either a shame model or it's a perfectionist model. What do you feel needs to happen right now in, in our society so that there's more safe people, if you will, in leadership? I'll just respond very briefly because, you know, I, 
I have a, an idea that pops into my head and I talk for an hour and I really want Julianne to kind of uh, share what she thinks. I think uh, what our what our world, and especially our country, as we're just you know a few weeks away from an election, as we're experiencing racial unrest and um, uh, political division and judgment and cruelty and meanness, and we're experiencing a pandemic uh, where, in many ways, uh, it brings out our disconnection that has been there, and it takes us away from healthy connection. I think what we need more than anything is humility. And by humility, I don't mean thinking um, less of ourselves, nor do I mean thinking of ourselves less, but humility is seeing ourselves accurately. And that means that we are dependent. Um, you know, the minute we run out of toilet paper at the pandemic, it's, it's very, very obvious that we are dependent on not just an economic system, but on other people. Um, in ways that are far more profound than we realize most of the time. My favorite definition of humility is from Thomas Merton. He said that humility is being precisely the person that you are before God and maybe one other person at any given time. And so it it seems as if, um, and I'm speaking to myself here, that we need to be something more than we actually are. I've got to be bigger. I've got to be richer. I've got to... Uh, be right. You've got to be wrong. And the other side of it is that we have to become smaller. We have to diminish ourselves. We have to throw ourselves under the bus. And um, the Christian community is fanning the flames of both of those right now. And I think that um, humility would bring us to a place of really being able to connect with others. And most importantly, it would allow us to boast in our weakness. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, a whole bunch of crazy things that are actually very revolutionary and countercultural to the kingdom of God. But he says, I boast in my weakness. And if there's a spiritual discipline that I practice consistently, it's that. Mm-hmm. And I've pretty much got nothing else. I've got a couple of graduate degrees and I'm, I'm actually really good at what I do, but my secret sauce is I boast in my weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it says, Paul says, when I am weak, I am strong. And most people think that verse means when I am weak, he is strong. And um, if our national leaders, if our pastors started boasting in their weakness, then people would come out of the woodwork to say that person is safe. Then this idea of grace that comes and falls over us like rain and, and washes upon our soul and lets us know that we're loved and that we're clean and that we're forgiven, we wouldn't need information uh, about pornography or the statistics. Yes, we need to understand the nervous system and betrayal in the same way that we would understand diabetes. But if leaders led out of weakness, Mm -hmm. instead of power, instead of trying to uh, present uh, a a glorious Jesus and to preserve the name of Christ, um, I think that things would shift. And the Jesus that I want to present to people is the humiliated God shamed God, the God who will choose to love at the expense of his own broken heart and be defeated and then ultimately come back in resurrection. But that's the God that I believe people are hungry for, is a, is a God that meets them in their pain, a God that co-suffers with us. And that's really compelling as opposed to uh, a God that's affiliated with a political party, either on the left or the right, 
or with an ideology on the left or the right. Uh, it, it, it actually gives us an opportunity for freedom. And Clint, you said this earlier, this idea of nothing to prove. We need to be, be um, the kind of people and leading our churches and our communities where we've got nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to lose because we're so deeply loved just as we are, as broken and messed up as we are. And I said I was going to talk short, and I didn't. <laughs> You know, just to add to what you're saying there, thank you for sharing that, Michael. That was amazing. And I, you said, you express, I mean, you're so, I know that you are extremely passionate for sure about helping people see Jesus in a new way. And I, and I read that, you know, that one of the things you're, you're really passionate about is, is that, is helping people understand the, just who God is and having the right perspective of Him. And the Jesus you describe is the Jesus that I want to follow. The Jesus you describe is, I believe, the absolute essence of what people want. And isn't that the exact thing that God did, right? That they say he came into the flesh, he humbled himself. I mean, that is the essence of Jesus, is that it was this, God, he doesn't have to prove anything, he's God. And yet, instead of using his power, instead of using his might to to just change the human race and make us be right with him, he does the ultimate thing of just, humility and humbling himself, making himself flesh, dying on a cross. I mean, that's what I heard you say, you know, the earlier you shared, and I kind of had an epiphany in that we always say that Jesus experienced betrayal from Judas, right? We always think about that. But didn't Jesus experience betrayal from all of us? Didn't we all betray him? Didn't, didn't, didn't we all put him on a cross? And he endured the cross, right? It says that he chose the cross. He endured the cross. And I, I, I love Jesus. <laughs> I love the Jesus that you describe, because that is the very Jesus that we serve. And it allows us to just consistently tell people, hey, man, I got nothing without Jesus. I am nothing. I can do nothing. I have nothing. And uh, I, I believe that more people resonate with that than anything else, for sure. Thanks for sharing that. Um, when I think about the nature of the church and the world, I can feel overwhelmed, powerless, right? And I want to say how the church can change is in two ways. Um, one is to realize it's not us and them. It, it, it's just us. Mm. We are them and they are us. That the same struggles that happen in the world happen in the church. Mm. Um, if we start to be honest about that, that we're human first, um, and then secondly is, what can I do? How can I live differently so that a pebble that I drop can send out a ripple and affect someone else who can then affect someone else? And that helps me overcome that sense of powerlessness. And so for, for, for you, for us, for your listeners, how can I live more transparent? How can I be more vulnerable? How can I be real and honest and transparent so that I make a way, a pathway um, for somebody else to do the same? Because I think if we wait for it to happen top down, um, we're going to be waiting a very long time because that's, that's not how Jesus worked. He, he didn't have um, an audience with the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, who did he speak to, right? Yeah. He, he spoke to the widow, the orphan, the prostitute, the tax collector. 
he spoke to, if we put it in our you know, world today, he spoke to those of us struggling with addiction, right? Without shame. He spoke to us, um, those of us who are recovering from trauma without shame. And I think that empowers us to share our stories and to come alongside and bear witness to somebody else's story. And to be able to sit and offer presence, not words, not wisdom, not advice, not godly counsel, right? But just our presence. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. Tell me more. How can I help? What do you need? That's being Jesus with flesh to someone else. Mm. So good. I think that is the pinnacle of healing for someone who has been in addiction or is betrayed, finally realizing who God is and how he wants to meet us there. And that in itself is like the healing factor. You know, for me, I had my God moment in our healing process, and it was one that was, hey, I love you. I've always been here for you. I've never betrayed you, you know come into me, lean into me. And I did. And that's when I started seeing growth and transformation like you guys are talking about, because he will meet you there and he will sit there with you and he will reveal things, but he will also just sit and and just share his promises and his love and his truth with you. And um, I think that is the ultimate healing factor um, that will bring you to healing and your marriage to healing. So what, what is it that God's calling you to do right now that you're working on that you are really excited about? Well, about 20 years ago, Julianne and I started Restoring the Soul, which is a nonprofit ministry here just outside Denver, Colorado. And uh, we started working doing intensive counseling with clergy and missionaries exclusively. And our intensive counseling programs are one or two weeks so that when uh, folks who have gone to counseling or marriage therapy uh, for months or even years, they don't really get anywhere. They don't get the traction they need for whatever reason. Uh, they can do our one and two week programs in half day blocks, Monday through Friday, and really experience breakthrough. Um, our, our programs are built upon what I call integrated clinical soul care. So it's cutting edge trauma informed. All of our uh, therapists are licensed professionals that are trauma informed and we work with attachment um, about half of the work that I do is around sexual addictions. And I do a lot of work with leaders and a lot of work with men and women with trauma and couples work as well. Julianne can talk a little bit more about what she specifically does, but we're really, um, even as recent as last week where we, we had some extended meetings with our board, uh, we're really committed long-term to creating intensive programs where people can step away from the normal rhythms of life, come to Colorado Uh, We're not a retreat center. Uh, We're an office building uh, in close proximity to several hotels, but it allows people um, to really address the core issues, to get to the root of the problem. And we commonly work with people that have done a lot of counseling, a lot of therapy. Unfortunately, they've gone to counselors that couldn't address the actual issues. And I, I joke that I'm kind of spoiled as a therapist because when someone has gone to so many different counselors and they've not gotten what they need, you can say, wow, well, there's there's something that's not being addressed. And it's usually just a couple different things. 
And so for 18 years, uh, we've been doing that. Um, and it's really remarkable and it's an incredible honor to be able to, in a very short amount of time, to walk deeply into people's lives. And the other thing we do is we create content through podcasts and books and um, um, train our counselors to be able to do this uh, so that we can leave a legacy to the next generation of therapists that are coming up. Yeah, I would just um, add to that. We're really excited about um, the team that God is building here. Um, he's really fond of, um, restoring the soul and that's just really cool. Um, I used to say he was really fond of, um, the betrayal trauma recovery groups. I just called them uh, an unexpected journey, you know, Mm. a recovery or support for wives. And, and he is, he's just fond of, of what we do, um, and who we are and in the, in the ministry. And so he just shows up, um, for us and to meet people here. And we're really excited um, about the team that he's putting together and that's growing and expanding. And that's really exciting um, as well. Well, thank you guys both so much for being on the Restored to More podcast today. For our listeners that want to learn more about the intensives you guys are creating and offering, as well as just so much support online through your podcast, everybody can go to restoringthesoul.com. Also, RestoringTheSoulWeekend.com to learn more. And for support with betrayal trauma, people can go to RestoringTheSoul.com forward slash Julianne, J-U-L-I-A-N-N-E dash betrayal dash trauma. Thank you again, Michael and Julianne, for adding so much value to our listeners today. We cannot wait to connect with you guys again. I'm yours until the end of time. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Follow us on Instagram and sign up for the upcoming course. You can also connect with us on the Ask Us Anything page at RestoredToMore.com. Also, quick note, all the work at Restored to More Inc., including this podcast, is made possible by our donors and financial partners. We wouldn't be here without those who have generously given to the cause of restoration. If you ever feel led to give, you can do so on the donate page on our website, 